This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here today with a return guest. Hadn't been here for a while, but I'm glad he's back because the timing is right. Uh, Simone Sykeman has a, uh, a pretty fascinating background in, uh, in federal service and now at Attain, but uh, two stints at NIST, two stints in the Office of Science and Technology Policy, uh, a stint at DHS and wrapping up his federal career as CIO at Commerce. Simone, welcome back, man. Long time. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. Uh, walk us through that background, if you would. I mean, I just did your, your highlights, but it, it was pretty fascinating to go back through that again. Uh, thanks, Mark. Yeah, the, the first half of my career roughly was spent in the science and technology arena. I first started my government career at NIST in a, a two-year limited term appointment position. So I was planning on working for a couple of years doing research and then maybe going to get an academic job at a university. But I liked what I was doing. My boss liked me. He had a, a permanent career slot open and asked me if I wanted to stay permanently. And I said yes. Uh, so that was sort of what kicked off my career. What had planned on being a short government stint turned into a, a bit over 19 years I, as you mentioned, had a, a couple of opportunities to, to do some different things, including a couple of roles doing science and technology policy at the Office of Science and Technology Policy in the White House, and serving as the first director of cybersecurity R&D at the Department of Homeland Security. And then roughly through about the midway point of my government career, I started feeling like I wanted to get into a more operational world and so I took a little bit of a left turn, left the, the research and development arena that I had been working in and moved into the CIO world, initially becoming the CIO at NIST, uh, spent a bit over three years there, and then moved up to the Commerce Department for another four years as the CIO there. So a total of about seven and a half years as a chief information officer, and that definitely gave me a, a much different perspective on government operations, service management, technology management budget management and, and all sorts of different related roles. Uh, and then just about six years ago, I, I felt like I had done everything I could do within the federal government. I, I felt like I probably could pursue a CIO role at a larger agency, but for me, that would have been largely the, the same type of role. And I was interested in really learning about the business side of IT. And that's what led to me stepping away from the government roles and moving into the private sector and for the past six years, I've been the chief technology officer at a company called Attain, a mid-size digital transformation and technology solutions company headquartered in McLean, and uh, been having a lot of fun so far. So far, so good. So six years outside. But, you know, one of the things that uh, your inside work also prepared you for at Attain, and I'm, I, I assume that the powers that be and attain have leveraged you for this is what happens during a presidential transition 
you know, you, you've been through several and a couple of those at a high enough level to have been like fully ensconced. So give me, first of all, your 25,000 foot view of what it was like when you were inside government going through transitions, e even from, you know, your initial uh, role at NIST. Well, that's, I think, a question I can certainly answer from my perspective, but I, I, I'll also mention that it it has a lot to do, the, the impacts and effects of the transition has a lot to do with the, the agency you're in, the nature of the agency, the mission, and also what level people are operating at. For, um, I'd say, well, it was a, a, a good number of years, probably over a decade, that I had been reporting directly to political appointees. And when you're operating at those levels, the, the effects of the transition are somewhat different than if you're operating at lower levels down, because you, when the political career ranks, uh, sorry, the political appointee ranks turn over during a transition, it has a more direct effect on an individual's role, priorities, as opposed to if you go down a couple of levels within the career ranks, it, it tends to be a little bit more likely to be business as usual and, and people are a little bit more insulated from the effects of those types of transitions. Okay, so um, let, let's take it from, uh, from a more managerial uh, role then. Uh, tell us about the, I mean, when, when we were planning for this conversation, you indicated to me that regardless of whether it was going to be a new administration or not, some sort of transition planning had to take place, right? Uh, that's correct. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Uh, first of all, even when the administration doesn't change, the incumbent is reelected or if the same party is uh, remains in place, there still is a lot of preparation for a couple of reasons, one being that some of the senior political people, even without a, a change in administration, do tend to turn over. And so there is a lot of preparation of briefing books and briefing materials to support new incoming people, even under the same administration. But more importantly, the transition planning has to start early. It has to start before the election. And so a lot of the things that need to be done for that preparation need to happen prior to knowing whether the incumbent is going to be reelected or whether the same party will stay in power or whether a new person will be coming in place. So a lot of the work that is done happens either way. And there's a lot of planning with respect to priorities, because again, even if the, the same party stays in power, there is often a, a, a shift in direction or a change in some of the priorities within the administration. And those types of things need to be prepared for both upwards and downwards. With new incoming people, they need to be briefed, informed, and educated on what's already been happening and supported for their new, new incoming leadership. And then moving downwards, any changes or impacts of the new people coming in need to flow down to the programs and the individuals who are in the career ranks. Okay, so at, at what point do you uh, meet I guess this would only apply to a, a change of party or change of administration. At what point do you meet with incoming uh, personnel in new appointees? Uh, well, there, I, th I would say there's a couple of answers to that. In terms of meeting with transition teams, 
That can happen at a variety of times, including before Inauguration Day, because as we've seen with the, the current transition that's going on right now, the new administration sends transition teams into the agencies, even when the prior administration is still in place. Uh, that's to, to both to learn, to lay a lot of the groundwork, uh, to meet people, but those transition teams that are doing that pre-inauguration day support are, are typically um, not the most senior leadership. They're not the secretaries and deputy secretaries. Um, many and maybe even most of them are not likely to actually be, um, they're, they're supporting the transition, but they're not necessarily likely to, to be appointees in those agencies. The most senior leadership and particularly the, the senior appointees and especially the Senate confirmed appointees don't actually come into play until after inauguration day because they only, they only step into their leadership roles once the prior administration has transitioned out and they're formally in their leadership positions. Okay. The mission can and will be impacted with an administration change. But during the, uh, you know, from, from November 2 or, you know, whatever the first Tuesday is, uh, through January 20, uh, you've got a continuity of mission situation. At, at what point is that impacted and how do you manage that process? Well, you can look at it in two different ways. In, in one way, you can argue that it's not impacted until after Inauguration Day because the incumbent's administration is, is in power until then and their priorities are the official administration priorities until somebody new comes in and says otherwise. But on the flip side, if you, if you look at the senior most career people, they need to support a, a smooth transition. They need to support continuity from one administration to the other. And sometimes it's, it's known in advance that from one administration to the next, there is going to be a, a change in priorities, sometimes a very significant change in priorities because there are certain agency missions that are not politically charged in any way, but there are other agency missions that, that do have strong alignment with, with party positions and party platforms. So the career people do have a sense of whether there's going to be a, a big change in the tides and, uh, and they try to plan for that and prepare for it, both in terms of the operations within their organizations, maybe holding back on some, some commitments until there's clearer direction coming into play from either from the prior or from the new leadership, and also making sure that the incoming people have a very good understanding of what's been going on to date so that they are well-informed and can make educated decisions about what to do differently, what to change, and, and not only what to change, but how to change it, how, how to do it effectively. Change management is very important. You don't want to be disrupting operations while you're changing priorities. Um, and so the, the, the government really relies on the senior most executives at the career ranks to facilitate a smooth transition and not just a transition. Cool. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I shall return with Simone Seichman of Attain right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Simone Seichman. Uh, Simone, you're, you're CTO at Attain now, right? That's correct. 
Okay, and that's six years. But prior to that, again, if you if you forget from the first segment, nineteen plus years in uh, increasingly uh, uh, higher roles in the federal government in science, technology, uh, and then at the CIO level. So um, when a new administration is preparing, oftentimes they're going to reach out to uh, recent graduates, former feds, for advice, uh, et cetera. Tell me a little bit about that, please. Sure. So I, when I was still in the federal government, I was part of some of the transition planning with the internal agency transition teams. After I had left government, I was also asked um, unofficially to just provide some perspectives, had a, a couple of informal conversations, uh, nothing, nothing terribly formal, but just providing opinions and some thoughts that might serve as good input or food for thought for the folks that were coming in. There are also a, a variety of non-government efforts aimed at supporting transition. Some of the uh, associations that are out there have transition projects, the, the Partnership for Public Service has one as well, um, but, but they're not the only one. And those are typically volunteer efforts that are aimed at also collecting some input, making some recommendations. Sometimes it's just objective, doing good business, doing things the right way types of recommendations. Other times there are some uh, policy implications wrapped into those recommendations and and that tends to vary a little bit some some associations are a little bit more involved in advocacy efforts than others uh, on behalf of their membership so so that's a something that that isn't necessarily the same every time around okay um so the transition uh obviously appointees are invited to vacate the premises january 21 um, and we have a new crowd coming in, but but how does all of this impact the the professional career staff, the SES, the program management uh, and project management teams, the 14s and 15s? What are the challenges and opportunities there? I think that tends to vary. Again, as I'd mentioned earlier, some some agency missions tend to be less affected. They they go on business as usual. Um, and in those cases, I would say the, the biggest challenge is just one of ensuring that everything is in place to support new leadership as they come in. Uh, new leadership, you know, in some ways they may have some strong ideas and strong perspectives, but they don't necessarily have detailed insight as to what's going on. And sometimes if they don't have government experience, they don't even know how, how the government works. Um, and when I say that, it's uh, it's certainly not judgmental, but you know, as all of us in this community know, the government works a certain way with respect to buying things, contracts, acquisitions, and people from outside the government are not always accustomed to that or, or even necessarily fully aware of that. Um, other organizations are definitely more impacted by the winds of change with respect to varying administration priorities. And you, you can imagine some agencies that even with the current change in administration are gonna have a, a significant shift in mission focus because of policy positions that are gonna be changing. Uh, priorities may change, programs may change, and even the, the balance of investments and where money is going may change. 
So in those types of organizations, I think that the challenges and the opportunities are, are much bigger. Uh, certainly, I think the career people are in the best position to support the smooth transition to advise new incoming leadership about how to manage that change from one administration to the next in a way that's least disruptive. And also, I would say that the, the career people, the, the incoming folks may have priorities and a vision, but they don't necessarily know from a programmatic perspective how to execute that vision. And that's another big opportunity for the career people to really help the new incoming leadership realize the vision and, and achieve their objectives. At what point do you establish uh, the communications channel between the uh, current staff and the incoming? I mean, this, this has been an odd transition year, but normally it occurs how? Normally, it's probably similar to what I had described earlier, which is that the, the incoming administration's transition teams can come in, have conversations, ask questions, but the prior administration or the incumbent administration is in charge until inauguration day. And so for most people, the exposure to the new leadership is not until after inauguration day. That's when people are able to officially take the helm. Um, but at the larger agencies, even that only happens later because at the, you know, at the secretary and deputy secretary level, and even in many cases at the assistant secretary level, those positions are not just political appointee positions, but they're Senate confirmed positions. And so those people can't officially take power until after they're nominated and confirmed to the Senate. Uh, and so in many agencies, that's going to be something that happens more gradually over time. But in the early days of the new administration, very often it's the, the senior, uh, depending at what level, of course, but very often it's the, the senior career people who are going to be in acting positions on behalf of uh, the, the incoming political appointees, or at least in those roles, until the, the politicals are appointed and then where appropriate uh, approved or confirmed by the Senate as well. Right. We, we had discussed this also before, but uh, when I started my business 35 years ago, um, there was a directory put out by GSA called the IRM directory, which is the old name for CIOs. And I put it in a D-based program and I updated it probably four or five times a year and I sold it to the uh, contractor community, but I kept it up to date. Frank McDonough's office put it out. Vivian Ronan was in charge of that project, and she only printed X number of directories every year. And after that, she would tell people, you know, she'd run out and she'd tell people to call me. So she was like my business development person. But one of the things that I tracked, yeah, it was cool. It was a nice gig um, and, and relatively easy to do because there was only like 900 people in the, in the book. Uh, there's probably a lot more now uh, if that book were still extant, but it's not. Um, but my, my, my thought here is uh, I'm, I monitored the migration of people from agency to agency and from government to industry. And during a, an election year, I always saw a significant spike in migration internally in government, usually leaving one cabinet department to go to another. 
Did you see that as well when you were in? Yes, that certainly did happen. I think um, for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, during an administration, the politicals, um, well, let's, I guess what I probably should have said earlier is even if the incumbent wins, there's still to some extent a transition happening. So there's something called a transition under any administration change after any election, regardless of, of who wins. But particularly in cases when there's a change in president, many of the CIOs are political appointees. CIO roles are one of those types of roles that there, there's no uniform standard across the entire federal government as to whether they're political or career positions. Uh, and so there's a mix of political CIOs and career CIOs. As a side note, even over time, one specific position may flip back and forth between being political or non-political. Um, for instance, when, when I was at Commerce as the CIO, I was a, a career CIO. And when I left, they changed the position to a political CIO. So my successor, Steve Cooper, came in as a, a political CIO. Um, so back to what I was saying, there tends to be some significant movement in the CIO ranks purely because of political appointees vacating their positions during a, a transition. And that means that in, in many of those cases, new people will come into place. And sometimes those people are selected from within the government ranks. Uh, and then you also have essentially a, a trickle down effect or a trickle up effect. If some person leaves their role for a, a CIO role at another agency, that leaves a, an empty spot behind them that needs to be filled. So you, you kind of have this, this movement of people emptying and then refilling, backfilling roles. Uh, so the, the CIO ranks certainly are affected. Uh, I would say that in uh, probably the, the past couple of administrations, there's been more of a focus on bringing in outside CIOs, not exclusively, but but certainly a, a more substantial or a larger number of CIOs coming in from the private sector to fill some of the political CIO positions. The, the whole transition thing is, is intriguing, and we're going to follow it up right after this. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I shall return with Simone right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Simone Seitman, CTO of Attain, and uh, for 19 plus years, a uh, 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 almost a career fed, um, two half a career fed, because um, you're not vacating the private sector anytime soon, because because we like you here. Um, so there's. There's a couple of other things I want to talk about from the uh, federal point of view before we migrate to the, uh, the impact of a transition on industry. And one of those is, um, used to be called, I think, the Blue Book, the presidential appointee. Uh, a lot of people don't understand that, that there are 4,000 appointee slots, 1,200 of which require Senate confirmation, 1,200. <laughs> That's a lot of appointees, first and foremost. How does this trend, that part of the transition take place, and what's the impact on the, on the permanent staff? I know you've already touched on both, but hit it again. Sure. So I, I think the, the main issue is whether the positions that are 
you know, the topic of conversation are ones that require Senate confirmation or not, because the ones that don't require Senate confirmation, they only require presidential appointment. Those can happen very quickly. Now, whether they do or not is a different question. Uh, You know, every every administration has their own priorities. And typically the Senate confirmed positions are a higher priority to the, the incoming administration can't control when they get confirmed, but at least when they get nominated, those are very often among the the first ones because for two reasons. First, those are the more visible high profile positions. It's partly a, a, a statement of administration position who gets put into those positions. And also because the confirmation process does take a while, they want to get those people nominated as early as possible to kick off the process that needs to happen in order to get them confirmed. Then there are some folks who uh, are a larger number of appointee positions that are um, not required to be confirmed. And many of those are also high priority positions, either because from an administration perspective, the, the organization that they're supporting or the mission they're supporting is a priority, or in some cases, those non-confirmed positions will be the ones who are acting as the the senior most political person in an organization, and therefore they'll be acting in the roles of the Senate confirmed positions that are vacant because it takes longer to fill those due to the Senate confirmation process. So um, so there's a, a rush to, to fill or at least get people nominated into those positions for a couple of reasons. First, to get acting leadership in place, and secondly, to get the ball rolling on the confirmation process. Okay. We have one more issue that is really unique to this transition period, and it impacts both sides of the fence, and that's the whole work from home uh, scenario. Um, is is the transition any different as a result of of work from home? Well, I uh, I'm not part of it this year, but I would have to imagine that functionally the what what the transition needs to accomplish would remain largely the same but in in practice i can't imagine that it wouldn't be significantly affected um part of the issue is you need to get people together for conversations and sometimes it's harder to do that virtually although i think the the world has adjusted pretty well to virtual meetings but there's still some uh, scenarios that you can imagine might be hampered so some of these virtual conferencing capabilities have a a whiteboard function, but it's just not the same as getting in a room together with a a large six foot by eight foot whiteboard and really drawing things out. Um, Also, I would say the the confidentiality of certain types of conversations is hampered uh, in a work from home scenario. Um, I think the the security of these conferencing capabilities is improving, but, um, but I, depending on the sensitivity of certain types of conversations, it could be that some some conversations are just not ones that you'd want to rely on uh, a virtual environment for and maybe need to have in person. Um, not limited to classified operations, but certainly and notably those types of operations you can't just do over uh, Zoom. Um, so I think um, there is a need to certainly adapt to work from home and sometimes also work around those constraints and work in person person when when it's possible to do so with the appropriate 
social distanced and uh, risk managed environments, but um, but some types of conversations I'm very convinced are happening in person and not virtually. Okay, so let's let's flip this and look let's look at it from the industry point of view. So you've been at Attain for six years now, so shifting your business priorities to reflect the uh, incoming administration. I'm at, it's This is weird because I'm writing an article about this right now as well, especially for, uh, for smaller companies. You know, we are going to have some significant changes in priorities. So what does a, uh, a company do? I mean, you're, you're the CTO at, at a significant player in the market. So how, how, what are your, what's, your reading of the tea leaves here. Uh, so I can give you my my perspective, um, and certainly some of it may relate to technology. Uh, for instance, a, a new administration may have some specific technology priorities that they've already been messaging around. But for the most part, this is a, a generally a business type of conversation more than a technology conversation, and. Any company needs to, uh, you know, to use your term, read the tea leaves and, and try to use their best judgment to make predictions about where things are going to change and how they're going to change. Um, a, a company's contract portfolio, like a, an individual's retirement investment portfolio, is a, a portfolio where certain bets are placed in certain areas. And if all goes well, you have a diversified portfolio, which is able to manage risk and withstand a bit of disruption without, without collapsing. Um, Attain is, uh, we're, we're a mid-sized company, about $250 million. And so we have the, the good fortune of having that kind of a diversified portfolio. We have both some business and traditional back office operations, as well as mission operations that we support. And we support missions at different types of agencies. Um, and so just, you know, giving a couple of examples, we have some work at the U.S. Uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services, and certainly that world is one where, from the prior administration to the next administration, we can expect some changes in priorities, uh, maybe over the longer term, even some changes in budgets. Uh, we have some work at the Environmental Protection Agency, another agency where there's uh, a mission that has some political and party alignment, and so there too we can expect some shifts. Um, but if you're lucky, the, the agencies where you, you predict maybe a softer business in the future are offset by other agencies where you might predict some growth in the future to, to make up for that. Uh, and so those are the types of conversations that happen internally, what, what the impacts might be on both individual programs that we're supporting. Um, and what I mean by that is you might be at an agency that you will expect to be significantly affected from the change in administration, but you might be delivering services that are or are not affected. For example, if you're providing email services, those email services are gonna happen last year, they're gonna happen next year, that's not gonna change, that's not really gonna be affected by transition, but there might be some mission-specific programs that are on, uh, on the chopping block or on the flip side, some that are looking at big plus ups. Again, it all depends on what those priorities are and how they're changing from one administration to the next. Yeah, I, from from what you just said there, I would see, think that uh, that EPA is going to be one of those ones that's going to 
be significantly beefed up in the upcoming uh, couple of years. So let's go ahead and take our last break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Simone Seichman. You can find Simone on LinkedIn, S-Z-Y-K-M-A-N. And uh, I hope you don't mind me saying that. And, and you, can, you can find Attain there as well. So we'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with my friend, Simone Seichman. I can call him my friend because we've had two shows now, maybe three. Who knows? Um, I think it's three. I think it's three. There you go. We're old friends. Uh, so I, we, got, we have one more segment to go. But one of the things, and, and I told you, I'm writing about this right now as well. I write every darn day. Um, but your internal staff at agencies should be having conversations and gathering intel with the clients to get a feel for how deep changes might occur and which direction they might be going. Is that, first of all, correct? Uh, is that something they should be doing? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and that's something that, um, you know the career the career leadership has multiple levels and layers from SESs to uh, sometimes other SESs below them GS15s and then uh, lower level managers under them um, and so there is certainly a flow going down of um, preparation but also prioritization and prediction of what may change or what needs to change. And I would say at all of those levels on the government side, there are also private sector counterparts who are in communication with those managers on the federal side, trying to understand what what we as a private sector need to do to support those agencies through their transitions. And then even beyond the transitions, what we need to do to support the agency effectively over the long term under potentially new priorities. Okay. Do you have a... uh... Uh, some sort of internal process where where your your uh, your on-site staff are debriefed on a regular basis in normal circumstances and even more during a process like this. I think whenever there's any kind of disruption, there are internal communications on the private sector side. Uh, what form they take and how often they happen tends to vary. Um, so you can imagine, although now we, you know, we've bought ourselves a couple of days, um, but whenever there's a continuing resolution and a risk of a government shutdown, there's definitely a lot more planning, uh, action and activity and conversation on the private sector side. Sometimes that appears more likely than others, but when we're approaching very close to the end of a continuing resolution, if there's no definitive runway in front of you, we need to be prepared, even in even in situations where it seems less likely. Uh, so those are the types of conversations we're having. It's not directly linked to presidential transition, but they they often happen at the same time. The you know the transition and the end of a continuing resolution frequently are happening right around now. And then in terms of supporting transitions, there isn't a lot of company wide communications because the impacts of those transition does tend to vary from one agency to the next and one program to the next. And so those conversations typically happen within a particular program team rather than being company-wide. 
Okay, so uh, the budget priorities are one thing, but you brought up an interesting point there. We have the situation where we are yet in another CR. Um, how likely is it to extend to uh, January 21? I mean, we, we always see the CR being kicked down the field to, you know, whatever the new Congress is going to be. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of an amusing game here in D.C., but it's not amusing because it, it messes with the budget. Well, that's true. I will say that um, just from what I'm, I'm hearing, I don't have a crystal ball, but I, you know, I read the same press that you do and hear the same uh, folks on the, the uh, executive branch side and the legislative branch side as you do in the press. Um, it, it appears that this time around a, a, a shutdown is less likely, um, but that's not to say what kind of um, timeline we have for, for having a, a, you know, a fully funded year. Um, whether there's going to be another short-term CR, whether they're going to manage to put in place a, a, a budget measure that goes all the way through to Inauguration Day or perhaps even beyond. Um, it's hard for me to say. I'm, I'm a little less concerned about a shutdown. I think the real question is there are, there are some constituencies that probably feel like it's in their best interest to nail down a budget for the long term. And there are other constituencies who feel exactly the opposite way and would rather have a short-term budget provision so that they can, uh, after the administration, the new administration is in place, work on a, a new budget that might better align with the, the priorities of the incoming president. Uh, and so there's, uh, I would say behind the scenes, there's probably um, a natural tension between those two constituencies. And I guess I, I'm not willing to place my own bets on uh, which one comes out on top there. Yeah, no, that wouldn't be a safe bet anyway. So let's, let's touch bases really quick on um, larger companies have a lot of resources. So during this transitional period, they have, you know, more research, they have more feet on the street, more butts in seats. So they probably have a much better feel for what's going on and they can shift resources accordingly. Agreed? Yes, yeah. I mean, I, I would say that that's certainly true. Um, I, think, I think large companies are also more likely to have some at-risk programs, but they are able to do risk mitigation in... Uh, in accordance with what they predict might be happening. So, um, so I think that that's one preparatory step that most companies are doing. But I think the, the big focus is also not just on uh, how, to, how to deal with the negative impacts, but also starting conversations around how to support the positive change that's happening, understanding, um, especially with the, the clients that an, a company may have very strong relationships with, having those open conversations and saying, what can we do to help? How can we support you supporting your new incoming leadership, the new politicals and the new agenda that follows? Um, I think it's in every company's interest to be able to do that, um, both because it's a, a good relationship development thing to be able to support your clients and make them successful. And it's also uh, a way of protecting your your business and your investments within an organization, the the more 
positively viewed and, and the more positive impact that your program brings to the agency, the more likely it is that you, you can keep that work over the longer term. Yeah. So what would your advice be to the smaller contractors, even some of the mid tiers, maybe, you know, somewhat smaller than you guys? Well, I think there's a, there's sort of a short-term recommendation and a long-term recommendation. The, the long-term recommendation is to really work on building a diversified contract portfolio so that you're less um, subject to business disruption that results directly from shifting administration priorities across a transition. That's easy to say, but any small company that might hypothetically find themselves in a, a you know, a, a difficult or risky situation right now, it's, it's a little um, late to be able to execute on that recommendation. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's really a long-term planning thing. But if you're, if you're between a rock and a hard place right now, that, that doesn't help. Uh, I think the, the real issue is one of understanding um, impacts, making, making reprioritizations within the company, belt tightening if necessary. That's something that, for example, even the larger companies need to do and sometimes uh, to a larger extent when, uh, when shutdowns are happening, uh, there might be some um, cutting of budgets internally within the company to protect people. There might be some uh, short-term um, use of, of PTO to support people uh, and, and to keep paying them at a time when there may not be as much revenue coming in. So there are a variety of things that can be done uh, on the short term to, to weather those types of changes. But I think the, the, the best thing to do is just try to protect one's programs by ensuring that, um, that they remain high priorities even through a change in administration. Uh, every agency, whether they're growing or shrinking, will have some programs that, that are on the chopping block and some programs that are um, likely to continue and some programs that are likely to start as new starts for the company. Okay, any final thoughts? No, nothing in particular, but I just wanted to thank you for the invitation. It's always a pleasure to come and chat with you and uh, I'm looking forward to the next time. Yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's regroup in about two or three months and see where those tea leaves fell. Sounds good, Mark. Thanks very Sounds much. Good. Have a thank great you. Thanks. Bye. Listen, hosting Amtower Off Center is fun, but it's not my day job. If LinkedIn has not become a prior or primary tool in your company for building your professional networks, for communicating your core strengths, or for creating deeper relationships in key accounts, we should talk. Drop me a line at markamtower at gmail, and thank you for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.